You didn't read the endnotes? I don't think you read the book then if you didn't read the endnotes. Oh my gosh. You know, it's, it seems like Chester Brown, he'll kind of like to get some thought in his head and he'll keep mining it and mining it and mining it. And then he worked, he worked this shit out in comics. When we last checked in with the Canadian indie creator Chester Brown, we were on a madcap caper about Ed, a clown who was less than happy, and all of the indignities he suffered. Well, Rumman went down a rabbit hole or a portal into another dimension and emerged with Chester Brown's 2011 memoir, Paying for It, a comic strip memoir about being a John. It's essentially a catalog of the prostitutes Chester Brown visited from the mid-90s to the mid-aughts, and how these encounters, well, it might be too generous to say that they changed Brown himself, but they did form his thoughts on sex work and shined a light on an industry that's both clandestine and often surprisingly mundane, at least as, de- as Brown depicts it. So, I'm Ryan Joe. And I'm Roman Segel. And you're listening to a bonus episode of Quarantine Comics the happy ending edition but not too happy because we want to say wholesome and pure so rumen you picked this up after reading ed the happy clown and you actually liked this one better it's a very very different book but what appealed to you about paying for it in particular Ed the Happy Clown was one of Chester's first books. Literally, shit he was drawing, photocopying, and stapling and handing around Toronto. This was a proper book that he pitched. He got support for it. He literally got Canadian grant money from the Arts Council to create this. And it's something he thought about a lot. It was an autobiographical work. So we're revisiting an artist, a creator, similar to Mobius, further on in life with more to say, less of a point to prove. And so it was just a more mature work. Again, it's more thought out. He knew where he was going with it. He knew what his agenda was. And, you know, it summed up (laughs) with a quote from Chester, his autobiographical character is, he's fighting two competing desires, the desire to have sex versus the desire to not have a girlfriend. (laughs) And the idea of romantic love and non-romantic sex it's expressed the ideas. Again, it's it's not a graphic book. The points it talks to can be graphic at times, but I mean, it's unerotic. He's making a point. He's detailing his encounters in kind of a really like clinical way. It's, it's a criticism of romantic love, which I, I might not agree with, but I respect kind of him taking a stand on a topic that not a lot of people choose to. There's actually a very static uh, nature to the panels, right? Oftentimes, it's like two people talking, and it's pretty much the same layout, the same panel repeated. And even when he meets up with the prostitutes and he's having sex, there's basically a lot of shots that are almost identical. And what's also interesting, kind of adding to the whole clinical nature, is that as Chester Brown is having sex, obviously sometimes he's enjoying it, but he's also processing this long review of the woman he's having sex with, like... You know, oh, she's covering up her face. I'm not sure if I like it. So his thought process is extremely active, even in times when you would think that his libido would be completely 
taking over. And actually, you know, throughout this book, you can see him working out his thought processes on on sex work. He's having a dialogue with himself about, I don't want to say the morality of paying for sex, but maybe the efficiency of it. It's almost like a business proposition that he's putting together. Well, someone I read, it might have been in The Guardian or uh, The New York Times, because I, I like to read reviews of the book after I read it, not before. One reviewer said that Chester Brown becomes a libertarian character, end quote. And there's a lot to unpack there, but... Did you say you character spoke, or caricature? Caricature, yeah, oh, a libertarian okay. caricature. And step away from this, that this book is about prostitution and sex work for a second, but because we do have to jump back into that. And I, I do want to criticize him on it a little bit. But one point that I love how he litigates, and he litigates, litigates it with parallels, where it is kind of a very libertarian argument, is the idea of decriminalization versus legalization. And there are some fantastic points in the appendix. So if you do pick this book up, stick around for the end, read the happy ending, stick around for the end and read the appendices because he talks about legalization. I mean, the, the easiest uh, the, the easiest comparison that he makes is prostitution is legal in Nevada. It is decriminalized in parts of Canada. And as a result, you have two very different user experiences. And user not being the John, but the prostitute, the user of this system. And it paints a very stark difference between a more kind of socially equitable way of approaching this vice that has demand in our society versus the kind of capitalistic, hate to say it, regulation-driven world, capitalistic and regulation-driven, so it's both sides of the aisle, that America chooses to experiment with in Nevada. And it's it's really telling. Now, now the criticism I have to give is he comes off reeking of privilege, almost ignorant to the the realities of sex work. I'm sorry. Like he kind of only becomes awake in the appendices about the idea of the sex trade and modern day slavery. Like he encounters and he calls them out for being foreign speaking with accents in like the front of the book. It's like, really that never occurred to you that that might be a thing. And it doesn't become a theme in the actual book, but he tries to address it in the appendix. And I'm like, you're again the sterile libertarian arguments they work on paper but and the realities of the world and what this sort of the vice that this demand drives again i i still think it should be decriminalized after re having read his points but he seems ignorant to the realities of the world he's only he's only aware of his own realities and his kind of anti-romance inclinations which that's another point i can litigate later there is something kind of solipsistic about Chester Brown's interrogation of this topic. Now, if I recall correctly, Chester Brown, he was in favor of, of decriminalization. decriminalization, but not yeah. legalization because legalization would entail regulation, which yeah. goes against his sort of libertarian point. In the book, he actually has this dialogue with the cartoonist Seth. Yeah. 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 And... You know, I, I one of the things that I had a problem with when Chester Brown was talking about this is that he makes these assumptions. Yes, that he he kind of goes. He says, for instance, well, if you legalize it with regulations, there's clearly going to be a bunch of black market prostitutes who are kind of flying under the radar, and they're going to be even less safe 
And I kind of remember thinking, well, wait a minute. How, how do you go from legalization with regulations to there's a whole black market ring? No, of I, agree. I, I fully agree to that point. That was a super salient point. And the same thing's happening with with drugs in America. Like I just it's it's a salient point, Ryan. If you if you create if you create laws, people aren't going to agree to the laws. It's kind of like with let's use music, right? Like now and we grew up in college in the era of Napster where it was completely illegal and then iTunes came out. There is still a black market called BitTorrent and it exists and there's a lot of risks there. There's a lot of terrible shit happening. But hey, if you want to watch a movie for free, that's the way to do it or you could just pay Apple 5 bucks. And you know, be it malware or whatever. So when black markets are given the oxygen to breathe. I thought that was a really salient point. But the I just think, well, I think just because it's regulation doesn't mean it gives the black markets opportunity to breathe. There is, you know, BitTorrent went down, for instance, when streaming became more available. You know, it's actually up. That that's actually. Um, sorry, go ahead. If it's up now, it's up because the content is less available because of all of the different streaming platforms that all the are rules out there and all of the restrictions around it. But. I don't if necessarily you just, hang on. If, if you just decri- if you just decriminalize the content and let anyone carry the content on whatever platform and had a true free marketplace of I can either get my content, all the content in the world from Netflix or all the content in the world from Google, people wouldn't feel the need to go to black markets to get it because they don't have all ten subscriptions. We are kind of running astray here, but if the content is available for Netflix, Use, would that be compare, would that be analogous compare, to like decriminalization or or legalization? Think of music. Actually, think of music. Music's a better example. With music, if you want to listen to a Spin Doctors album, I'm just picking the Spin Doctors because you know Jimmy Olsen Blues. You can go get your Spin Doctors track or album from any of the major players. So therefore, because I can get it from anywhere, the capitalistic markets are operating efficiently. But on TV or movies, when you can only get Mulan from one place or you can only get The Office from one place, you're trapped. You're in a box. And if you don't want to be in that box, you might subscribe to a black market. Like mu- the black not, market for not... music, the black market for music doesn't exist anymore. But the black market for content does exist because there's lots of rules and traps. That's not an argument, though, for me against regulation. That's an argument against black box models. That's an argument against. Is this know, an ad exchanger podcast? <laughs> it kind of, it's starting. It's starting to become one. <laughs> okay, so let's let's try to let's try to position. Let's let's bring it back to prostitution. Let's bring it prostitution. Back to you know, someplace wholesome. I guess the the issue is, you know, we're kind of looking at this binary. Either there's regulation or there's no regulation. But a large part of what's going to actually dictate whether there's a black market for prostitution is what sort of regulations exist. Are there the sort of regulations that will kind of help give oxygen to a black market where women are forced to work and are ultimately less safe? Or can you put together regulations that are actually beneficial that keep women safe, that help them maintain ownership over their work, over their bodies, maintains health standards without instigating some sort of movement into a black market because the regulations are too onerous? So that's- that's But what I will say, so to make the, the argument- to that, the one state in our union where it is legal, and he makes some points about this in, about Nevada in the appendices, is it's not being done well. And with our level of political dysfunction, while I fully do agree that the state should be a laboratory for these sort of things, I don't trust our states to get it right on something this important. 
something that is already happening and we need to get our hands around it, it would be easier, similar to marijuana. Uh, but when it's done on a state-by-state level and it's not kind of done in a sweeping manner, you have pockets of bad shit happening because the regulations aren't going to be consistent. The interpretations aren't going to be consistent. This is one of those things where I don't think there should be, again, this is where I think decriminalization, the argument for decriminalization is a stronger one than regulation because you should decriminalize first and then figure out how to regulate it. But if you try to regulate first, this is where all the nooks and crannies are in the shadows and the black markets will start to form versus just kind of blanket amnesty. I would agree that decriminalization could be a good forum to actually figure out regulation. So we will deregulate for five years. Based on the learnings of that, we will start to impose some sort of regulations. To me, that would be that that would be the ideal because I don't think blanket decriminalization is the long-term answer, but it could be the short-term answer just to see what sort of regulations are going to be needed it, because you really don't know how people are going to react once something that was forbidden is now freely available, how are well, people going to no, act? No, what no, sort of risk no, factors emerge? The problem, yeah. the problem is in America, we're a very puritanical country. And look, I'm not a Christian, but I'm the first guy to admit we are, uh, we are interpretively a Christian nation. And so those guys want rules. And I've had arguments about drug policy with many of my Christian friends. And they need, like I've literally said, you made all the arguments for why weed is better than alcohol. And people are like, well, as long as it's a law, the law is a law. Sorry, got to follow the law. And I just, I don't trust us to get it right. I just don't. <laughs> the reason I want some rules and some structure is because I fundamentally believe that human beings by and large are kind of selfish assholes. And they make the wrong decision. Absolutely. They make the wrong they make the wrong decisions left up to their own devices. They make the selfish decision. And I think there needs to be some structure. What what so what, what is that structure exactly? Now that's that's not something that I can answer, but, but I but, 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 but to bring that, it back to Chester Brown, one of the yeah. arguments he makes is in a decriminalized nature, again a non-regulated one, if uh, a prostitute is um, subject to abuse by a bad John, so to speak. And so in a, a regulated scenario with the black market, she, she's going to be afraid to go to the cops. So she is not safe. And a decriminalized situation, she can go to the cops and report the John. And so it, it's almost like setting up again. And I, I really, I do want to talk more about like, where well, how I about disagree. How about a how about a regulated scenario that's that that isn't happening within the black market? Because he's he's he kind of the fundamental point is in a regulated system there will will exist a black market, and I I agree with that assumption. In egg, any regulated system, uh, I'll, I'll let's use another parallel: cable. Back in the day, cable was a regulated thing, but people stole cable because they didn't want it. They didn't want to pay for it, right? So. People will, but to, to your point about people's base instincts, when faced with a rule, be it a mask law, an environmental law about water usage, et cetera, especially in America where we have this exceptionalist streak, we're going to try to get around it. The only place worse, in my opinion, is India. <laughs> That's like worse about that sort of stuff. So here's where I disagree. Like, like, yeah, you're right. I do agree that if, you know, any, any, any time there's a structure, people are going to try to subvert that structure, there will be some sort of black market. I disagree that the black market, in the case of prostitution, would necessarily be the, the dominant market. 
You know, it's just like, as you mentioned, people ripping off cable. It's not like it wasn't like the majority of Americans were ripping off cable and that there was this sort of like huge black market infrastructure of cable, you know, stealers. Most people were paying for it, uh, so to speak. <laughs> Way to bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that, that's where I kind of like am a little bit raising i'm raising my eyebrow with chester brown like he he assumes the black market will be the dominant market and i don't necessarily think that's true yeah and to be fair by creating some form of legal framework decriminalization or regulation you do shine a light on the current existing black. the whole damn thing is a black market right now yes, so you're yes. turning the lights on i want to talk about some of his points that i didn't agree with because i've been kind of fighting the pro chester brown argument but it's fine that he chooses not to engage in romantic relationships but I'm sorry, like as a happily married man and who's not happy every day, to be very clear, it takes work. And as most things that require work, if they're worth it, the work is worth it. You know, it's just like he's like, you know what? I'm out. I'm not even going to try. I'm checking out from this thing because it's not for me. And then he kind of goes off on his autobiographical experiment and says, this is my way. And therefore, you guys are idiots for trying to pursue the other way. And he literally makes fun of his friend for trying to pursue uh, a romantic sexual relationship. And he's like, well, good luck being lonely. (laughs) You have fun with it. I'm going to go get some right now. Well, Chester Brown, like I said, like he has trouble, I think, empathizing with with other people. Yes. So, so he doesn't, I mean, based off of this, I I agree. Like he doesn't want to put in the work in a relationship. And I, I feel like a lot of, what he's doing, a lot of the explanations that he's giving for his reason not to pursue a romantic relationship is him trying to justify it and also normalize it. I, 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 yeah, I agree with you on that point. I do think that you know Chester Brown um, assumes that because romantic relationships don't work for him personally, for whatever reason, they therefore don't work for anybody. And obviously that's not true at all. I think... And, and, you know, I, I think Chester well, Brown... Actually, I, I, I want to say something. I think this is where I actually find myself, God, I, I shudder to say this, feeling conservative in my argument. I do think, I really struggle with saying this, in a decriminalized prostitution world, would it be an assault on stable relationships? If all of a sudden you can just pay for it, why bother to have a relationship? Yeah, because why bother don't... to seek that out? Because people aren't getting into relationships just because they want to have sex over and over again. I mean, that's like that could be a, a one reason. Well, hey, as someone who's as someone who's in a relationship, I'm not in this relationship to have sex over and over again. I spoiler alert for all you young men thinking getting married is all about getting laid all the time or newlyweds. It's not. The honeymoon ends, and a relationship is deeper than just sex. It's a relationship. It's a partnership, and. That's there's another argument on monogamy, but like relationships aren't just about sex. Yeah, I I don't think this is I don't think the decriminalization or legalization of prostitution would change the nature of traditional human relationships. I don't think it would change the fact that most relationships are monogamous, and even if it did change it, I don't think that would be a problem. You know, I think I think it's up to each person to to try to figure out what sort of relationship works best for them. They have that to sounds be- really libertarian, right? Oh, you know what? I mean, 
just because I seem more conservative and even Christian, as you mentioned, oh my God, in some aspects doesn't necessarily mean I adhere to those thoughts and all other topics. I just want to add also that, you know, the legalization or the availability of prostitution, I mean, in a way, I think that would actually be a good thing because it would it would kind of give people another option, something else to kind of think about. And I kind of feel like you need as much information as possible. It feels very, this feels very clinical saying it, but you need as much information as possible when it comes to like understanding what you want in a relationship. I want to ask you a question. You're a newly married man. The opening of this book is his girlfriend who he lived with wanted to pursue an open relationship. Yeah. That's literally what led to him, you know, long-term ending the relationship, realizing he wasn't going to have sex with his living girlfriend anymore to kind of pursue prostitution. And I've had this argument with a close friend years ago who was in a marriage that kind of wasn't working out and they chose to pursue an open relationship. They wound up getting divorced. And I don't want to say it's fully because of that, but when it was happening, I was like, jealousy is a strange thing man it's we're humans we can't fight it like that's kind of why we have to put some kind of constraints and guardrails yeah anyway so so i have i have no actually i have a friend was in an open relationship for a while until they had a kid and now i think they've they've closed it off but you know speaking of constraints and guardrails i mean there were a lot of constraints and guardrails around the relationship in fact there were probably more constraints and guardrails around their open relationship than there was around most most monogamous relationships because huh. they needed to have a lot of trust and a lot of security about what the other person was doing for instance there was no there were no secrets if you were going to go out to meet another man or another woman you need to be very clear with your partner about that they 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 both had veto power if if the husband said no to a potential lover for the wife, then she had to say, no, then, then no, that, that, that's it. End of story. And same thing with, with him. If she looked at a woman he was going to meet and she said, no, then no, that that's end of story. So, to, so yeah, to your, to your point, to your point, it's, everyone needs to kind of figure it out for themselves. But what I will say is this, and maybe I'm incorrect in this assumption. Do I think open relationships can work? Maybe, but I think people who can make it work are the exception versus the norm back to oh, yeah. our, back to people are assholes and people make the wrong decisions or people we have our lizard brains get jealous and all those things same thing with drugs actually when talking to kids about drugs right like i don't do drugs much but i think to handle drugs you have to have a very mature worldview and thoughtful approach to it same thing with alcohol that's my opinion and that's one person's opinion how I much rum are you drinking right now? I just want to. I just want to state that. I'm, on done. The record. I'm, okay. I'm done with the very finish, finish, finish the bottle. He did. At least I don't show up to podcast stoned, my friend. So just that saying. was that was an accident, and I and I don't know if anyone. <laughs> yeah. Try, hey, hey, kids! Try to guess which episode of Quarantine Comics. Yeah. Actually, that that's actually the next contest. Which episode of Quarantine Comics was I was I high in? No, in all seriousness, I think. A person is smart, people are stupid. And I think the masses can't make mature choices about vices, be it drugs, alcohol, or sex. I just don't think it's possible. <laughs> like the lizard brain takes off and more often than not, not the thoughtful, rational brain. And so be it open relationships, prostitution, drugs. This is where I don't have faith in humanity. Again, I'm all about decriminalization because of all the things it would free up from a safety a conversation standpoint but i just think if we're gonna do it no pun intended we have to 
just go in eyes wide open about like, and I'm not opposed to it. I'm just saying it's people going to make some dumb decisions because people are dumb. Yeah, I don't think it's that binary, like the rational brain versus the lizard brain. I mean, it could be a little bit of both. You know, it's all it's all kind of a spectrum. And I don't know. I mean, like, you know, going into relationships, choosing to, you know, pop a magic chocolate or, you know, drink that extra glass of wine. I mean, there are so many things that could be motivating that decision in any one moment. It's not like you're addicted and you just definitely need to do that last line of cocaine. (laughs) We're we're saying, we're saying there's something in the book that Chester Brown has, like, there's a moment where he does like financial planning. He's like, well, if I go to a prostitute every two weeks, that'd be 26 times a year. 26 multiplied by an average of $160 equals $4,000 a year. That's a lot. I can't do it once I get a house. It's just like the, the rationalization was hilarious going back to the comic finally (laughs) um the clinical i i think i think there is something kind of amusing about the clinical way he approaches what is fundamentally a a, a taboo subject which is not only prostitution but basically deciding to see prostitutes in lieu of actually getting a girlfriend you know i actually i actually kind of appreciated that dichotomy where he has this kind of very academic well not academic very business-like way of of approaching the situation and of justifying it as well. Yeah. And look, I, if you get the book, I actually would really encourage a lot of people who are, if you're not into comics, this is a book to get, this is more a graphical treatise. I don't know if I'm saying that word correctly on this issue in our society. And it is really well thought out. I would encourage you to read the forewords by other authors, the, the appendices. You don't have to agree with him you'll just see the argument from a lot of different angles. And just to criticize him, put one more nail in the coffin on him. I think he's like willfully ignorant to the the world of sex trafficking. It's something we talked about on the Watson and Holmes episode. It's a thing in our society. We have more slaves in this world now than we did 200 years ago. And it's because of sex trafficking. And the demand of prostitution is what drives it, the demand for this vice. And again, I'm not, Again, this is where decriminalization could actually make it better, but he just seems so ignorant to that fact that it exists. Or maybe that's the point he's making, why we must decriminalize. But in like literally some of the girls he met early on didn't speak a lot of English. There's kind of, I mean, I'm casting a stereotype, but I'm just like, really, dude, you, you didn't see that that may or may not be a thing. Well, and that, 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 that was the one that was the one thing that disturbed me in the whole book that he just couldn't see that. And I was thinking that at the beginning of the book in some of his earliest encounters. I was like, dude, come on, seriously? Well, we talked about a potential lack of, well, potential. We talked about a lack of empathy. And, you know, part of that is 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 a certain myopia. You know, he sees what he wants to see. And unless he decides to go into this other area and, and start exploring it, I think he's just kind of, he's kind of going to go forward with, with, with blinders. He's going to do and what he wants to do, right? Yeah, I, I also feel like he is also looking for evidence that supports his narrative, whether that's evidence of like, you know, romantic relationships are bad and unnecessary or, hey, prostitution, it's actually a good thing and should be widely available to everybody. I think he kind of starts looking for reasons why that is true and, you know, either ignores or rejects other scenarios that might undermine that argument. That includes sex trafficking. Here's what I'll say. This was a really good book. Like it was just really well thought out on a really 
pretty taboo topic in our society. And I literally, I, there were a couple of nights where I was reading it in bed and my wife looked over, she's like, what are you reading? And I was like, oh, just a book, <laughs> just a book by this artist that we read on Quarantine Comics. I'm procrastinating Sandman. <laughs> and, but it didn't feel like a banned book. It was, again, you don't have to agree with everything in it, but if you want to understand the issue more, man, I'd, I'd really recommend this book. That's, that's interesting. This is the biggest kind of rave I've heard you give in a while. And, you know, you it, you seem to like this book for very different reasons than even some of the other books that we've reviewed and you've enjoyed. It's almost like a text that you, instead of reading it for like the pleasure of fiction, which is not fiction, I guess it's a memoir, you know, you read it to to kind of open your mind to these to this new issue. Well, this is the second nonfiction graphic novel that we've read on this show. And I love the medium of comics because it's not about superheroes. It doesn't even have to be sci-fi or horror. It's a medium for telling a story or making a point. And I've read a lot of nonfiction comics and they've opened my eyes up to, they've made a topic more accessible. I could, I could not have read this book in prose. I don't want to read 10 articles about this on the Guardian or the New Yorker, or, you know, but it was kind of a fun one man story with a lot of salient points and citations on a topic that people don't want to talk about that's right in front of us. It's literally underneath our society. So, Roman, you know, we are supposed to be reading Sandman. Oh, God. But you've been procrastinating <laughs> it. Are we still reading that next week? Ryan, I think we have to. You know, Sandman is... This is my Moby Dick. <laughs> you know, it's the comic book that comic fans are supposed to have read. It is the wire of comic books. Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Ten volumes. I don't know if I'm going to have all ten volumes done by next week, but halfway through volume two, we got to do it, man. And this is required reading. This is not a school assignment. I will be a better person for having read Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Next up, can I just? I know you seem to be approaching this like it's a high school assignment. Like you said, you've been procrastinating. You decided to read the world of Adina instead of Sandman. You decided to be paying for it instead of Sandman. Why is that? Do you view Sandman as as homework? I'm afraid I'm not smart enough to read it and get it. No, it's one of the. It's it's high. It's super entertaining. We'll see. (laughs) We will see. (laughs) No, it's like the Beatles. Beatles, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan. Things I knew I was supposed to have a point of view on, and it wasn't until I was pirating music living in Singapore that I listened to all of my buddies' Beatles MP3s. I became a Beatles fan while living in Southeast Asia, cut off from new indie music and shows. And I became a Bob Dylan fan, sequestered at my apartment after my daughter was born. And Quarantine Comics is the perfect place for me to read Sandman. Well... Until next week, if anybody comes up to you and says, so do you have any opinions about Neil Gaiman's Sandman? You can always say, I know a lot about prostitution now. I've got some thoughts about prostitution. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God.